0: Alright, so Mark's Gospel is written to Christians in the city of Rome, remember? And they had an authority over them, but it was a cruel and a deadly authority. It was Nero. Nero was the emperor. In ancient Rome, there was actually a cult which considered the emperor to be a god. It was the, the emperor as god cult, and he was, he was their ultimate authority, now, if we look back at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, if, you're, if you want to, we're going to be only in Mark chapter 1 today. And so you can turn there and just put that on your lap and look at it. But in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The good news of Jesus begins with this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now this statement of the good news of Jesus' authority stands in stark contrast to a similar proclamation that came from the emperor cult way back in 9 B.C. So a little bit before Jesus was born, the emperor cult proclaimed this. They said, The birthday of the God, Augustus, who was the beginning of the good news, the same word, a gospel, for the world that came by reason of him. Okay, so here's this emperor cult saying, Augustus is the God. And here's the good news about him. Pretty similar words to what Mark uses at the beginning here, right? One Roman title for the emperor was, Son of God. As we read last week, Mark starts his gospel with, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is trying to get his readers to come to terms with a few things, right off the bat. Which gospel is the true gospel? The true good news for all the world? The gospel of the empire or the gospel of Jesus? Who is the true Son of God? Jesus or the Emperor? Who is the true authority that we should follow? The Emperor or Jesus? And the rest of Mark's gospel is written to establish the fact that Jesus is the true Son of God, Jesus is the true authority, and the gospel of Jesus is the only good news. Now, this is incredibly appropriate for us today, I believe. We live in a society that rejects authority. We are a society that thrives on deconstructing the ways that have come before us. In an effort to be free, our culture tries to cast off all restraints and all authority, and in its place, we elevate self as the final authority. Like, I get to make the call. The mantra is, I have the right, as a human, to make my own decisions. I get to decide what is best for me. I don't need anyone telling me what to do. In essence, I am my own God. I decide what's best for my life. I decide what I want to do, where I want to live. I decide what I want to drive. I decide what I want to wear, what I want to look like. I decide what to do with an unborn child. I decide what to do, how to die. I decide what gender I want to be. I decide what marriage is. I decide what chemicals I'll put in my body. I determine what is moral. I determine what is ethical, what is loving, what is right, and what is true for myself. And that's what we hear in our culture. I am my own authority. Unfortunately, when everyone decides what their own reality and truth is, and we're all the authority, then there's no absolute. When everyone is an authority, there is no authority. And unfortunately, without an authority who comes before us, there is no road map. It is everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, and without a moral compass, an ethical map, an authority who's gone before us, we end up in chaos. We end up lost. And you don't have to look far to realize that this is what's going on in our world. Last summer, I went backpacking into the Bitterroot Mountains outside of Missoula, Montana. Yes, Montana is a beautiful place. They are incredibly beautiful mountains, untouched by loggers or any machinery. It's millions of square miles of virtually uncharted wilderness. Thankfully, I went with a few other guys. Two of the men had gone before on this particular, into this particular area and camped on this particular high-altitude lake where we stayed. I was extremely thankful because they went before. They had been there before me. They were the authority on the trip. They knew the way. They knew where to stop, where to get water, where to camp, where to, what to watch out for, what we could eat, what we could not eat. And because I wanted to walk out of the wilderness alive, I made sure that I submitted to their authority. I followed their directions and obeyed their commands. If it were not for them, I would have been afraid, stressed, uncertain, probably eaten, gotten lost, made poor decisions. At the very least, I would have been hurt. It wouldn't have been good for me. As a society, we have deconstructed authority and reality to such an extent that many folks are hopelessly lost, and they don't even know it. They struggle internally. They are fearful. They are stressed. They're uncertain. They do not sleep well. They make poor decisions. They hurt themselves. They're being devoured by Satan, by addictions, by greed, by maintaining an image that's not even them. They are lost because they're not following anyone but themselves or someone that doesn't know the way either. And this has led to something I thought I would never see in my lifetime, and that is that many are confused as to what it actually means to be human. We all need someone to come before us, We all need an authority to follow, to teach us how to live and what to live for, to teach us the basics of being a human. To know who we are, to know what is true, to know the way, to know what is ethical, we need an authority. But who is the true authority? Is it myself? Is it the emperor? Is it the internet? Is it public opinion? Is it a God? If so, which one? And this is the ultimate question. This is the question. Which leads us to the premise of this message. This is, if you get nothing else out of today, take this away. Jesus is the one true spiritual authority that we can follow. Period. Jesus is the one true spiritual authority that we can and should follow. Mark is declaring that the true authority who is worthy to be followed Is Jesus, And I will submit to you that Mark is correct. There is none better than Jesus. And this is very good news. Remember last week how we saw that God tore open the heavens and he spoke over his beloved son? This was the fulfillment of Isaiah 64, 1, where Isaiah is pleading in prayer to God to rend the heavens and come down and destroy all his enemies. But in verse 2 of Isaiah 64, Isaiah states this. He states why he wanted it to happen. To make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. In our passage today, Jesus is going to begin to uh, Mark is going to begin to unveil Jesus' true authority as he confronts Jesus' adversaries in the demonic realm. As we work our way through this gospel over the next few months, Jesus will make his known his name known to his adversaries, and we will see the nations begin to tremble at his presence. So in this passage, Mark begins to reveal and unpack his claim that Jesus is the true authority, that he is the true son of God, that his good news is for the whole world by recounting three quick stories. Jesus launching his ministry, Jesus calling his first disciples, and Jesus casting out unclean spirits. Mark doesn't actually record Jesus saying more than a few words in each little story. If you have a red letter Bible, you'll see that there's like just a few little words in there. But in each instance, his words are incredibly authoritative and powerful words. And something happens after each time he says something. But through his actions, we will see that Jesus is the one true spiritual authority that we can follow. Alright, I know that was a long introduction. Let's get into the, into the passage. So verse 14. We're going to look at Jesus launches his ministry. Verse 14 to 15. <clears throat> now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel." So we're going to see that Jesus speaks with authority. So Jesus came into Galilee. Much of Jesus' ministry, as recorded in Mark's gospel, was in Galilee. So there's going to be a, a map on the screen, and you can look at that. It's just just around a lake, a few little towns. Galilee was an insignificant, small region of the world. It was not prominent. It was not the cultural epicenter of the world. That Galilee was not the heart of Jewish religion either. It was just a rural town on a lake with salt-of-the-earth men and women who ran their businesses like fishing and carpentry and animal husbandry. And yet Jesus chooses this rural lakeside region to launch his ministry. And it's also the place where Jesus, after everything is said and done, Tells his disillusioned and scattered disciples to come back and meet him after his resurrection. And it's where he commissions his, his disciples to go out into the world. Now, North Prairie may be a rural, off the beaten path, insignificant region of the world. We are salt of the earth people who are not on CNN and BBC, yet, God has given us skills and gifts and business savvy and expertise to be used for his glory. This is the type of place that Jesus chose to launch his ministry. Perhaps there's something for us to learn in this. Worldly size and influence does not determine value and significance in the eyes of Jesus. And Jesus calls normal, average, working class citizens to expand his kingdom. And Jesus is using us and he will continue to use us in this place to further his kingdom. The question is, what type of group of people will we be? As we look through this passage today, Jesus interacts with three different distinct groups in Galilee. There's the disciples, the crowds, and the religious leaders. His disciples, they followed and obeyed, and God used them greatly. Then there were the crowds. There was mixed emotions and mixed responses. Some were astonished, some were fearful, some were skeptical, some were accept, accepting. From the crowds, many just came for the show and then they left. They wanted to be entertained and amused, but they were not quite sure whether to follow Jesus or not. And then there were the religious leaders. They were flat out antagonistic and rejected Jesus. Everything about them, everything was about them and not him. And in the end, they stirred up the crowds and put Jesus to death. So what will our response be from this rural town that we live in? We salt of the earth, normal people, small town in the Midwest of U.S. Will we be like the disciples of Jesus and follow him? Will we be like the crowds and just stick around long enough to see a good show? To see what we can get out of it and then take off? Or will we be like the religious leaders and be antagonistic, stirring up the crowds and rejecting Jesus? I pray that we all choose to be disciples of Jesus and follow him as our authority. So Jesus was walking around the sea. He was proclaiming that the time is fulfilled. Jesus announced that the time had come. Everything was going according to plan. God's kingdom was beginning And this was the dawning of his salvation when he would put an end to the rule and reign of sin and Satan and death. This was a definitive moment in history. This is Jesus launching his ministry. And just like in Ephesians, we looked at Ephesians 1.10, in the fullness of time, remember that word? God's plan of uniting all things in Jesus went into action as Jesus began to proclaim the kingdom of God had come. So the time had come. And he was proclaiming the good news of God. God. God is the righteous king. This is good news in and of itself. <clears throat> but now, I'm sorry, his kingdom is at hand. The idea of at hand in this passage is this. It's to draw near. Think of bringing chairs. Think of getting in your kitchen and you're bringing all the chairs and you're putting them around the table. and Everyone's coming towards the table, Right? This is the idea. God's kingdom is drawing near. He's pulling up his chair to the table, and dinner is beginning. The time has come. The fact that God has come in the person of Jesus and that his kingdom is here is good news. Through Jesus all sins are forgiven. We are we have hope of eternal life. All wrongs are righted. All oppression will end. Jesus will reign in righteousness and justice. This is not just good news. It's great news. And Jesus was proclaiming this to Galilee, and he would say this. He would say two words. He'd say, repent and believe. And Jesus says this with authority. First of all, he says, repent. In recording fewer words of Jesus, I think Mark brings special attention to the few words that he does say, and one in particular that I think we often overlook and we often miss And that word is repentance. Now, this might be a strange illustration, but work with me here. When we moved into the Tobo village in Papua New Guinea, we had to learn a different language. It was never written before. And this is tough enough, but when you learn a different language, you also have to learn a different way of thinking. Let me explain. In English... When we're walking in our backyard, or we hit a patch of mud, or ice, or snow, or whatever, and we slip and we fall, we say what? I fell down. In Toba, when you would be walking on a muddy trail and hit a patch of slicker-than-snot ice, or, uh, it was clay back over there, and you would fall, you would say, which means, I slipped and the ground hit me. So as I was in language study, I tried over and over to say, I fell down. <clears throat> I'd be like, I fell down. And they'd look at me like, what did you just say? I'd say, I I, I slipped and I fell down. And it would never come across. It just didn't make sense to them. Well, after repeated failed attempts to tell them that I fell down to no avail, I finally had to say it the way they said it. And it was a battle in my mind. I actually had to say it the way they said it, even though I didn't want to say it the way they said it. I could no longer envision my falling as me going down to meet the ground, but as the ground coming up to meet me. This was a difficult transition to make. Of course, the ground doesn't come up to hit me. Their way is clearly wrong, and mine is clearly right. (laughs) But that wasn't the way that they thought. That was not their worldview, and it's not how reality worked to them. To them, the ground hit them. In order to truly speak like them, I needed to repent. I had to change my mind and my point of view and my point of reference, and I had to look at reality through their eyes. This is repentance. Repentance is not a work. Repentance is a change of mind. Repentance is not only admitting that the way I've been seeing and interpreting life is wrong— but it is making a conscious decision to turn away from what I have been thinking and believing and going to a different way. And then Jesus said, believe. Jesus preached repentance and belief. For him, it wasn't good enough that a person continues in their old way of thinking and living while trying to believe something new. It was incompatible. If God's kingdom was indeed here, and they believed that, then that meant that whatever way they were viewing the world before needed to change. Before I was believing something new, I needed to change my mind that what I'm believing now is is incorrect, insufficient, and untrue. Now here's how this plays out today. Many in our world believe that all faiths, or any faith, or all beliefs, lead to God. And as long as I have faith or they have faith in something, then they and God are going to be good. We're good, whatever good means. I've asked a lot of people, they don't know. However, Jesus says that he is the only way to God. Both of those statements can't be true. Jesus says for us to enter the kingdom of God, we need to repent of this false belief and believe what he says. Now maybe I don't think it's fair that Jesus says he's the only way to God. Maybe I think it's exclusionist. Everyone else is wrong and I'm right. Maybe I think that's narrow-minded and arrogant. In the end, all those excuses are just me playing God. I want to be the authority, and I want to set the rules when you get down to it. Jesus says, I need to repent. I need to change my mind about my getting to set the rules as to how I have a relationship with God, and I must submit to his authority and believe he's the one who determines how I relate to God. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And if we submit to his authority, then that means that's the road. Because he's gone before. But so what? Who was Jesus? Why is he the ultimate authority? He was a man like everyone else after all, right? He made that claim, but why does that make it true? And this is what Mark is going to demonstrate through the stories about Jesus in his gospel. That Jesus had inherent authority and power derived from being the Son of God himself. So we should listen and we should follow him. Point number two, Jesus calls his first disciples, verses 16 to 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus does not head to the religious or educational institutions to find his followers. Jesus does not go to Jerusalem or to Rome. Jesus goes to the heart of the working class in little old Galilee, to the early, to rise and late to bed, everyday common folk. And the first thing he says in this gospel is, follow me. This is not normally how students would enter into a rabbi-disciple relationship. The rabbi would not traditionally initiate the relationship. The rabbi would not ask his students to follow him. He would encourage them to follow the law. So, Jesus' initiation of the relationship and his call to follow him was already out of the ordinary. It was authoritative. By following someone, you are acknowledging that you view them as an authority. When I followed those guys into the woods, I was acknowledging they knew what they were doing, and I did not. And it's quite striking here in this story there is no discussion. Jesus does not explain what's going to happen, he does not do a miracle, he does not persuade them. He just simply says, Follow me. And each man is faced with the decision to follow Jesus as the authority in their life or not. And the decision required belief. Their belief in him as their authority would be authenticated by them turning their backs on their way of life, repenting, and following Jesus, believing. Their belief in him as their authority would be authenticated by them turning their backs on what they were doing, repenting, and following him in belief. The action of getting out of the boat and falling in step with Jesus down the seashore would legitimize their belief in his message and in his authority. And Jesus says, I will make you become fishers of men. Becoming a fisher of men, becoming a disciple of Jesus, was going to be a process. The disciples were signing up for a life of, tra- of training, and transformation, there would be difficulty, suffering, pain, just like in anything else that you train. Through the ups and downs, Jesus would teach them and train them on how to become fishers of men. Now fishing, real fishing, like they, like they, we, we throw a line in the water today, but they would throw nets in and bring in big boatfuls and stuff. It wasn't an easy job. It took time and dedication. It required a specific mindset, a culture, a way of life. Being a fisher of men is the same way. So what do the disciples do? They immediately leave their nets and their boats, and they follow Jesus. Now, to me, this is evidence of Jesus' authority. No man in his right mind gives up a good day fishing for anything. Am I right? No. A bad day of fishing is pretty much better than anything else. And most men do not just up and leave their means of livelihood— to follow after nobody or nothing. It's like they got rid of the bulldozer, they got rid of the hammers and saws, and they just started walking after Jesus. This is indication of the urgency of Jesus' message. There may not be another call. This may be the only chance. Repent and believe and follow him today. There's no time to wait. And this is an example of being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus calls these fishermen to fish for men instead of fish, and they immediately obey. Even though there's no details of what that means, there's no means of income, they don't know the plan, and they don't, they've never fished for men before. But they follow in obedience to Jesus' word. Now what does this say about how we should respond to Jesus? Jesus begins his ministry by calling disciples. Out of love and grace, he used his authority to choose to use people to carry out his mission. As we repent and step out in faith and follow him, we will find that he calls us to more than just sit and learn. He calls us to become his disciples. Becoming his disciples, as we will see, is a process. A lifetime of learning and training and difficulty and suffering and walking alongside. Becoming a disciple means we will be busy doing the work that Jesus began, which is fishing for men and women. We have an important and vital part to play in the epic plan of God. We proclaim Jesus' same message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The question is, will we be like the disciples and join him? for our last point, now we get into the beginning of a very, 24, a very busy 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. So Mark is going to give us a snapshot of 24 hours in Jesus' life, and we're going to see how Jesus handles it. We're going to start today, and then next Sunday we're going to finish it. All of it has to do with Jesus' authority. So this, this sermon is entitled Jesus' Authority, part one. Next week is part two. All right? So it begins here in verse 21 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter, this, this 24-hour period. So we're going to look at the first event today. So Jesus casts out an unclean spirit. Jesus is going to rebuke with authority. Verses 21 to 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately they were in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. All right, so we've talked about Galilee already. Now Jesus is in a town called Capernaum along the edge of the Sea of Galilee there. Capernaum was a small port town. It was on a trade route between, like Jerusalem and, and the rest of the world. It may have had up to about 10,000 residents in Jesus' time. It wasn't super big, but it was sort of influential. And Jesus enters a synagogue. A synagogue was a Jewish meeting place. The Jews would gather regularly to hear the law read and expounded upon. And the ruler of the synagogue wasn't necessarily the one who taught in the synagogue, so it was up to the members of the synagogue to do so. A little different than today. Typically, the scribes who were well-versed in the laws would be the ones to teach. And we're going to see the scribes mentioned many times in Mark. In all but one place, they're in opposition to Jesus. We're also going to see the synagogue mentioned a number of times in Mark. In this story, a demon is present in the synagogue. Now that tells you something. And this presents a challenge to Jesus' authority. And they were, first of all, though, they were astonished with his teaching. So Jesus was teaching on this particular day in the synagogue. It was his turn to stand up and teach. And they were astonished. They were astonished. Why were they astonished? He was one who taught with authority. That's what it says one who taught with authority. Jesus did not teach like the scribes did. Something was different about his teaching. Jesus did not borrow his authority from someone else. Jesus did not teach based on authority of someone else or on the authority of tradition. Jesus taught from his own divine authority, something completely foreign to this synagogue. Now what did Jesus say that was so astounding? I don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. Mark doesn't key in on what Jesus says so much. Instead, he keys on what Jesus does after he teaches. The actions of the teacher authenticate the authority of the teacher. For Mark, the person of Jesus is more important than actually the teachings of Jesus. Mark wants us to key in on who Jesus is because he is ultimately the authority. So how does Jesus authenticate his authority? Well, right off the bat, we see that Jesus' struggle is and his fight is not with humans, but with the spiritual realm, with demons and with Satan himself. Mark has just recounted how Jesus is was victorious over Satan's temptations in the wilderness. And now immediately, the first time Jesus preaches in a synagogue, he's confronted by a spiritual force, by a demon. Jesus' ministry was not characterized by waiting until people came to him. No, he goes to them. He treads where Satan treads. He enters the strongholds of demons. He brings light into darkness. He goes where there are lost people. And Jesus enters the synagogue and a demon tries to intimidate and control Jesus. He names Jesus. This is a sign of assumed authority. the the demon saying I have superiority over you by naming you and he says what are you doing here Jesus of Nazareth this is not your town we're in Capernaum you're from Nazareth Go back to Nazareth where you belong. I know who you are, he says. You can't run from us demons. We are all going to pounce on you soon. And in an effort to one-up Jesus, to exercise authority over him, he names Jesus a second time. He says, he calls him the Holy One of God. And true to Isaiah 64, his enemies know his name. But what does Jesus do? He says, be silent. Jesus silences this spirit. And the word, the word in Greek literally means to muzzle. Muzzle it. It was one word said with authority and power. Jesus doesn't need to call out the demon's name in an effort to exercise authority over him. It's not this back and forth battle. He simply tells the demon to shut up and it's done. Now why muzzle the demon? Okay, Jesus, the demon has actually said some truth, right? Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, Right? Well, two reasons for today. We're going to get into it more next week. But to demonstrate his authority and power. Jesus wants to demonstrate his authority and power so he muzzles the demon. Number two, Jesus wanted the message of who he was to go forth the way he wanted it to go forth. Through humans and not through demons. Demons cannot be trusted to carry a vital message about Jesus who is the savior of the world. They're going to corrupt it in some way, shape, or form. So he muzzles the demon. And we're going to talk about more why Jesus tells people to be silent all through the Gospel of Mark, starting next week. And then he says, come out of him. And Jesus simply casts out the unclean spirit. I don't know about you, but I've seen some demonic activity when I was in Papua New Guinea. And it was freaky, and it was intimidating, it was evil. And if someone I didn't know all of a sudden entered the place where I was teaching, called me by name and did what this demon was doing, I would be intimidated. I would be afraid. But Jesus has all authority. He simply speaks, and the demon's gone. Jesus is not intimidated. He's not scared. He does not back down. He simply tells the spirit to leave. And it leaves. Jesus' simple, single words have power. And they were all amazed. Everyone... A new teaching, they said, with authority. Jesus' actions authenticated and enhanced his teachings. The crowds key in on his teaching again because of just what he did there in front of them. A new teaching with authority, repent and believe, took on a whole new meaning. Jesus' message was different than the scribes. It was new. It had power. It wasn't just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It brought new meaning in life to what they had been listening to all their lives. He spoke and things happened. Jesus' word resulted in action. Jesus spoke and the disciples repented, believed, and followed him. Jesus spoke and the demon obeyed. Just like the disciples, the demon submitted to the authority of Jesus. He was obedient to Jesus. And get this, even when he didn't want to. Jesus has that much authority. His presence commands that much obedience. The lesson for us Jesus is the one true spiritual authority that we can, and I would add, must follow. So there's a few things we can learn from this today. Just a few quick observations as we end. Jesus preached repentance and belief. For him, it wasn't good enough that a person continues in their old way of thinking while trying to believe something new, it was incompatible. If God's kingdom was indeed here and they believed it, then that meant that whatever worldview they held before needed to be rejected. Mark is going to unfold this truth. We cannot follow Jesus and remain the same as we were before. If you have not repented and believed in Jesus, please see me after the service today. Today is the day for you to walk away with a different mindset. And Jesus, number two, Jesus' way of doing ministry is not to wait for people to come to him. Instead, he goes to them. He treaded where Satan treaded. He entered the strongholds of demons. He brought light to darkness. He goes where lost people are. Is the good news good enough that it would compel us to go where lost people are? We'll be challenged by this question again and again in the book of Mark, so be ready to face it. And then number three, we see our culture. It belittles, casts off, deconstructs authority. And where where is it leading to? To anarchy and chaos and pain and confusion and hopelessness, lack of meeting, isolation. We all need a Savior. The world needs someone to follow. And Mark demonstrates to us that Jesus is the one, He's the authority that they can and should follow. Let's go introduce people to Jesus who lovingly and graciously saves his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Boy, there's a lot packed in just a few little verses. Thank you for the truth that Jesus is our authority. We thank you that he's gone before us, that he knows the way, that we can trust him. That there's nothing that we can experience that is out of his control. That he has power over demons. He has power over addictions. He has power over Satan. He has power over everything. And he can control all things for our good. Thank you that he, through his blood, has washed us clean. When we believe in Jesus, God, thank you that we have... Freedom from our sins, that we are forgiven, that we have salvation, that we have a hope of eternal life with you in heaven. We thank you for these things. We don't deserve them, but you give them to us freely by your grace. We repent of the ways that we try to get it any other way than through you. Jesus, you are the only way. We believe that. We stand firm in it. And we thank you for giving us this way out of the wilderness.